What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Well, we've all been there. Our child's tantrum at the mall, crying on a plane, the grip of death around our legs or at our waist at drop-off to an activity or to school, refusing to eat or maybe eating too much. And this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to parenting. Then you add in anxiety, ADD, ADHD, aggression, autism, learning disabilities, bullying, uh, and the process can just seem overwhelming. Joining me today, parent consultant and child behavior specialist, Sylvia Corzato. Sylvia is the founder of Success in Steps. And so this brings me to welcoming you to this episode of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And of course, if you have any information, great questions to ask or to check in, you can check in on extensionmarketing.com. Sylvia, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. I, and I was, I, I think I was overwhelmed knowing this topic, that we were hitting on this topic, because there were so many, so many places to start and to go. So I want to let um, the listeners know, we kind of decided we're going to take it from kind of birth on, right? So if they've got preteens, they might, they'll eventually fast forward until we get to life stages, I think, so that we can really hit on kind of the process of it all. And you were seven, like you're 17 years in this industry. You founded this company, but there was quite the story as to how you got in yes. to eventually having this type of a company. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It's been, it's been a journey. I can, <laughs> I can imagine. And, and two kids right now too, right? So you're yeah. doing the juggling like everyone else. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, everything that I preach, I practice as well. Which is important. Yes. I, it, but it's so funny, right? Don't you find people look at you like, okay, how is she going to handle this? What is she doing? It, it's, I feel like that when I'm grocery shopping, it's kind of like, what, well, what is she putting in her, <laughs> her, her, her grocery <laughs> cart? So oh, I'm going to look at you, you know, people are looking at you like, hmm, how is she going to handle this situation? All the time, mm -hmm. all the time. And, and, you know, both when I'm, I'm more people are, you know, they, they see me out in a bell and I get called out sometimes, which is still kind of weird. Um, but they see me with my kids at the grocery store and, you know, if the kids ask for something that I could, I could feel sometimes people watching me mm -hmm. or even if people don't know uh, what I do, we get this a lot when we go on family vacation. Your kids do really well at the restaurants or your kids are really well behaved. And I'm like, thank you. And then if we get into the long conversation, then they ask me what I do for a living. And they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> that makes complete sense. And then they start asking me for tips on for their children. And I, I, I love offering. That's a huge compliment. But that's a huge compliment. Yeah, it feels it feels really great because... You know, they've been, the joke is that the kids have been on a behavior plan since the day that they were born. Cause I've been in the field longer mm -hmm. than my kids have, have been here with me. So, which is, which is good to know, right? Is that you had the study and the understanding of what it was that you were going to be doing prior to even becoming a parent. Correct. So what for you, I mean, growing up, happy childhood, strict parents, like what was that experience like for you? Italian okay. background, um, 
not able to sleep over at anyone's house because I had my own bed type of mentality. Um, you know, when we were growing up, you know, you asked for something, my mom just had to give me the look. She didn't even have to say no. She just gave me the look and I knew to put it down. We all did. Um, uh, siblings? How many of you? Siblings, older sister, younger brother. Okay. I'm a middle child. Um we have we have a strong bond, me and my siblings, um, and my mom. Um, and it's just it's just been it was a fantastic childhood in, in respects to that. Um, and I've always I thought I was actually going to be a doctor when I was younger because um, I would watch the you know TLC back then when they had the operation channel and I would have my lunch and and watch the operation take place. My mom thought I was completely grossed uh, out about that. Um, I was a tomboy growing up, so very active um, and just loved doing anything that was physically active, helping out people, volunteering a lot. Was home here? Like was home Ottawa? Yeah, home was Ottawa. Grew okay. up in Ottawa, um, born and raised here, uh, mostly in the Hunt Club area, and uh, now I'm in the Weston. So there was a positive experience growing up, right? Mm. There was, I mean, and I think we all have it, right? You get that look from your parent and you, you just know. For, and for me, it's like I knew if she got to the count of three, if we came anywhere near three, <laughs> you were you were in trouble. And yeah. I tend to think sometimes with my kids, I can be able to do that, but I definitely feel like it's definitely not as strict. The yeah. entire generation of when yeah. we were growing up to what it, what I feel our kids are experiencing. But we'll hit on that. Yeah, it's we'll completely hit. different. When I go back and I tell my kids, like, they ask me, you know, well, what did you have? What did Nona make you do when you were growing up? And we have, and she's like, oh, my yeah. goodness. It's like this foreign, foreign yeah. world to them. Foreign, yeah. foreign world. So where did you end up staying? So what if you wanted to be a doctor... What was the program that you started that you initiated? I actually just started biology and mm. chemistry at Carleton. Um, and then I was thinking about kinesiology because I, I was really into the whole fitness and um, was into the fitness competitions and all that back in the days. Um, but then I switched over uh, once I got a touch on psychology as an elective at Carleton and everything kind of switched. That's interesting. So you're you're in for the medical program. You need to take a psychology, yeah. you know, course, mm -hmm. and it, that triggered. That triggered. Was it the mind? Was it the way of thinking? It was. I always wanted to help other people. So to me, because I was so intrigued by by operations, I thought that that's where I wanted to go. But then I saw how much I loved helping out people just in every day. Like I volunteered a lot. Instead of doing a frosh week, I was volunteering at the St. Vincent Hospital. Um, I was doing all kinds of stuff in, in that nature. So I just took the shift because children have always been a huge delight for me. Um, so I knew that I wanted to work then with children and families. Okay. So was it child psychology that yep. you ended up? Exceptional following? children is what the course was called. Exceptional children. Mm -hmm. And in that was like just short sentences on, you know, autism and ADG. Like it wasn't really a, a, a big topic. The, the big, the, the, part that took the longest like or the most in the in the textbook was FAS fetal alcohol syndrome was what they spoke about a lot during that time when I was in university which I would think is very different now huge difference well, probably the education mm -hmm. of of mothers yeah. you know in in the consumption of but it just seems while that would have led to a lot of other issues for the child now it seems like we're talking much more autism um, Asperger's, ADD, ADHD as anxiety, as, 
anxiety as common discussion mm-hmm. amongst parents or teachers in schools. Absolutely. Absolutely. And children don't normally get diagnosed till much later on because they're going through that de- developmental stage uh, younger at the younger ages. And so there's a lot of things that could look like autism or ADHD and such, but um, we'll talk or more learning about learning dis- disabilities yeah. too, right? There's exactly. It's, it's, they're, you're trying to figure out the layers as you're going about it. Mm-hmm. So you end up, because you spent quite a bit of time at CHEO. Yes. Prior to kind of branching out into into your company. Yes. So actually, if we kind mm-hmm. of, for you know, go, go back for that, the way I got actually into the field was that there was a posting at Carleton for um, looking for a therapist um, for a little boy on the autism spectrum. And honestly, I, I, <laughs> I still get all goosebumps about it because it was that little boy when I met him. Um, I get choked up, sorry, that when I met that little boy, I knew that my life was changing in terms of my, my field of my career. So you're a student. I'm a, I was just about, so I, I had my psychology degree degree at that point. Okay. Um, that was focused on child develop, like on child psychology. And then I was just finishing up my sociology degree that I focused on nonverbal communication. And it was during that year that I saw the posting and I was about to finish up and, uh, uh, for for a therapist for a child on the autism spectrum that was nonverbal. How old was the boy? The boy it was two, two year old boy. Yeah, and you just there was a connection. I met him. I had gone on a on Good Friday. Um, I met him. I saw his blonde hair and chestnut brown eyes, and he was nonverbal, and he just stole my heart. Like and still to this day. What did you feel that you were going to be able to do for this boy? I just felt like I could help him. I felt I saw a child that was nonverbal. I found I saw a way that you know, with the, the additional training to, to be the therapist, I I thought you know, we could teach this kid some lot of life skills. We can break things down so that he can achieve where his parents want him to be. And I'm not a mother at this point, right? This is well before I became a mom myself, but he just, he stole my heart literally in every aspect. And this is a child that I started working with. He was nonverbal. We did a lot of pairing. So a lot of him trusting me and such. And then I would start making demands um, with teaching him and, you know, breaking things down to small tasks, make him achieve and then building up on that. And then I'll never forget the day that, on the Ikea dry erase board, we were doing the alphabet and he started talking. And it's like, talk about reinforcement. Is there anything more rewarding than that? Like there are other things in lives, but for me, this little boy went from being nonverbal and using pictures to communicate to speaking. And it's like to hear his voice in that sense, like it's, and it I was, mean, I see the tears are welled <laughs> up and for, for us both, right? How, how many months had, had you been working together? Oh, I worked with him, um, before that moment, before that moment, it was, it was well over, um, almost, almost a year. Wow. Mm-hmm. Because it was April. Then I got my training, um, and, uh, then we were through the summer. So if I'm not mistaken, it was the spring of, uh, of the following That's, year. You know, you think about the time invested and the trust and the work that goes into even the smallest of an accomplishment. And yet that yes. was a massive, that was like climbing an Everest, right? For a child like that. Absolutely. 
It truly was. It truly was. I'm sorry. I'm getting the tissue because I am teared up now. <laughs> uh, do what? So this was a long time. Where's so, the, yeah? Do you? So I still um, in contact with mom every so yeah. often, or if I run in with her, um, and I get updates on how he's doing. I always send them an email for his birthday, um, September 28th. And um, <laughs> how long did you end up working with him? I ended up working with him for three years, okay. um, and then I, I. So that was I was working privately, and I was working with quite a few families in, with their children in their home, doing what we call IBI um, therapy, intensive mm-hmm. behavioral intervention. Um, so I had quite a few families. Then I worked at the school board for a short amount of time as an educational assistant, um, thinking that uh, to just expand my knowledge and to um, a little bit of a shift um, as a lot of my kids that I was working working with were going to school heading at this school heading age, into right? the school. If you think about it, you meet this young boy at two, mm-hmm. three years that they're off into the, into the school system. Exactly. So I thought, okay, I'm going to make the switch into the school system as mm-hmm. well. Um, that didn't last very long because an educate as an educational assistant, um, uh, no disrespect to educational assistant or anything by, by any means, but just as being a therapist, I felt like I was very constricted in what I was able to do. And, um, so I wanted, I wanted to do more, but the way that I got into Chio was that, it was kind of odd, actually. I didn't have any intentions to leave the school board, but one of the families that I worked with privately sent my resume to Chio, yeah. and then I got a call from Chio uh, for a job uh, position as an instructor therapist there. And then it was just kind of like, whoa, what do I do? And so I ended up going to Chio and spent 10 years in a variety of different positions in the autism program there. It, it was it was serendipitous then yes. that you'd had a family that believed in the work as to sending a resume without you. Yeah, and I still <laughs> to this aware. day yes. don't know who that family was. Can you believe that? Really? I, I could never got to thank them or anything. Like I didn't know, and I remember the hospital never said no. The hospital never said. Wow. So it was kind of weird. Like I had applied a few times there. Um, but it, there was a conversation of a family also. So it was just, it was really weird. But this was the start because 10 years is a, is a nice run. Uh, and especially at Chio mm-hmm. where you have, did you have access to different kinds of families, different programs, different research, different implementation of therapies? What were you able to experience there? So, um, I started off as an instructor therapist and did a lot of training in, um, in, in early intervention with applied behavioral analysis, I got access to a lot of different courses. I got to be supervised by so many amazing psychologists. Um, I learned so much from them during the supervision time. They would come and supervise weekly. Um, I just grew as a professional mm-hmm. through CHEO. And then in the field that I was working in, as a therapist, you know, there's book smart, but it's it's really hands-on. You have to be able to put everything into place and to apply the the strategies. And it's not always easy when you're dealing with nonverbal children, when you're dealing with aggression, um, when with noncompliance. So you really have to be paired, like motivated with the child in order to get that compliance. So there had to have been a payoff for you. There had to have been... I just found it so rewarding. Like, honestly, to me... 
when we would, because we had to do a lot of data at the end of every day, I just found it so rewarding when I was able to accomplish something with a child. To me, that's what the whole job gave back to me. It's like, I am doing this to provide this child with this skill. So let's break it down and let's work together and let's motivate. And it was, it's, it was just honestly the most rewarding thing that I, that I was doing at that time. When you're dealing with autistic children or nonverbal and, you know, there's a medical, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes on there, but then to be able to, to have had that experience and then to, to realize that there's a lot of different components to parenting and to behaving, the, becoming a behavioral specialist. Mm-hmm. Did you just feel like there were so many parents coming at you with so many different questions and so many different things that you saw expanding your practice out was the way you wanted to go? Was there an end to the CHEO? Because I looked yeah. at your website and like you cover such a spectrum of, of issues that mm-hmm. you were so focused on that a CHEO to, to branch out. Well, I'll give you a little Cole's note. It, it wasn't my, um, my thought. I thought that I'd be working at CHEO like to the end of my career. Um, so I always knew once I started deciding that I wanted to work with children and family, I always thought that, you know, and this is when I was in 20s, right? In my 20s, I'm, um, I'm in my 40s now. So it's like when I'm like, okay, by the time I'm 40, I want to have my own business is what I thought back mm-hmm. then. So like really weird that that actually happened. Um, but so I worked at GEO. I was an instructor therapist for a really long time. And then I had an accident at work. Uh, which left me not being able to work with the kids anymore. Um, And it was a really hard time for me because I really loved what I did. But um, I was off work for a year um, and I was paralyzed on the left side okay, for I'm a sorry. really long time. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, this is stuff oh, that we yeah. don't share on the website because I don't need everyone you to... You know, I thought I had done some research here. I, I'm a pretty private person, but... Do you mind? I mean, this is that's such a personal thing, but such a life-altering, mm-hmm. life-changing. So can I ask about it? Or- yeah, I... Uh, um, what happened basically was that I was in a behavior with a child for over two and a half hours. Um, and I injured myself at work by blocking myself and my, my body was exhausted at that point. And when I had twisted, um, to protect myself, um, so I felt something pop in my, my lower, uh, back and I didn't feel right after that. So I started having some tingling in my legs, um, and such. And so I was off for, uh, three months, uh, for physio and all kinds of stuff, um, got back to work and then, uh, re-injured, I guess I wasn't fully recovered. Um, and it was the simplest thing of a child. We were waiting in line to go to the snack room and I was holding his hand and all of a sudden he flopped on the floor and just the way he flopped unexpectedly unexpectedly made my yeah. back do the same thing. And, and then I was off for a full year doing all kinds of things. And, um, without going into too many details, it was a quite the whirlwind because they thought there was other thing, other complications, but then it ended up being, um, my back. I, I never would have thought, I mean, I, to have an, a, a, a type of aggression that you're physically exhausted Mm-hmm. That you're physically exhausted at your job, not only mentally having to stay focused on the work that needs to be done, but to be able to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, that's it's difficult to comprehend. Yeah. And then at the same time, and I hope you don't mind me having this thought. I'm thinking you're having one session with this child. What are these parents having to deal with 
uh, 24 hours a day. You know, like I have this compassion for you. Like, my gosh, you're at work and you're doing this therapy session. And I'm thinking this was, this was one day, one session. Yeah. What, what you must the, to sympathize or to understand what these parents deal with. And so that was a huge component and in, into moving forward. And I have to just say that any therapist that is listening to this, like my, I think that all therapists are amazing. Um, what we do as therapists, like we're, we are, we put our heart and soul. Um, you know, if you stay in, in, there's a lot of therapists that try and, you know, it's not their line of work, but those that are, and nothing against them, by the way. Um, but those that are, I have a lot of friends, um, a lot of people that I still know at Geo. um, and people in the private sector as well as a therapist, like it is tough work. So you're in it for the right reasons, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of them just, you know, it's rewarding to see how these kids can excel. Um, but yeah, it's, you think about, I, I have the strategies and the tools to help these children. I know how to be consistent. I know how to act and how to follow through if it's for a certain function of behavior. And then I thought, you know, it's when I became a mom myself, that I thought, oh my goodness, like I had the tools for my daughter that was colic for eight and a half months. Mind you, the behavior principles couldn't really apply in that respect, but it did later on in life for her. But I used to always think because, it, you know, that expression, you don't know what it's like to be a mother until you're a mother yourself. I didn't really get that. My mom would used to always say that to me. Um, but I would hear the parents, you know, they would come to us every night, you know, the next day, um, uh, and a drop off and they would, you know, we'd ask them how their night was and, and all those kind of things or anything we need to know. And a lot of times, you know, parents would, would break down or, you know, they would share their, their challenges. And that's just the relationship that we had with parents. And, um, I think it's great that they, they shared it with us so that we knew how we could best support their child. Um, but what I found very difficult was, um, when I would hear that parents would try what they saw us do in, in therapy at home and they were unsuccessful, um, that really, that really pulled at my heartstrings quite a bit. Um, and after I became, uh, so after I came back from Mark, um, uh, of my, uh, my year off, um, I was not able to go back to, uh, working with the children one-on-one, -on -one, um, for obvious reasons that, uh, I could really hurt myself, um, permanently. Um, so then I, uh, I started up the ABA program with the project manager, um, and love that. And then I became, um, an administrator, uh, for that program to set it all up with the ministry of children and, uh, youth services, um, for that. And then I became an instructor, uh, sorry, an, um, an intake worker whereby putting family plans together and listening to fam family's priority needs and doing the whole CANS, which is the child and adolescence needs and strength assessment tools, like doing all that. And I love that because I felt like I was able to help parents. I was able to help children. Um, but then I would still hear the same, the same thing, right? You know, a lot of great services for my children. Um, and the program's really great, but I'm still at a loss for myself. Right. It's how do you be able, how do you implement what you're doing in these programs, but be able to implement the other 23 hours of the day exactly. at home. And, and there was such a wait list for mm -hmm. the actual service. So I got to have a, a chat with them at their intake, but then they'd have to wait 18 to 24 months for services. 18 to 24 months. At the time. Yeah. So the autism program, as we know, is a little bit different. It's different not, now, not but existing. I do remember, yeah. I do remember, I remember hosting events and, yeah. and galas uh, for, for some of these programs. Um, okay. 
Yeah. So then you develop success and steps. Well, I developed success and steps because um, the government had a lot of cuts to the hospital and I never saw this coming. Uh, you know, I was in an intake worker position. I, I was loving what I was doing. I thought, okay, this is like the happy medium. I'm not able to work with the kids directly um, anymore, but I'm able to see the kids at intake. I'm able to help the families. And then I get laid off. Okay. <laughs> so I tell you, it's like... So there's a reinvention. <laughs> there's the reinvention. reinvention. But so much experience, so much knowledge. Yes. Uh, so much of the frustrating parts of what parents weren't able to do. Exactly. And so I think what you've done is brilliant in terms of being able to offer these services uh, through your company. Yeah. And, and through the work that you do. Thank you. So when I got laid off, um, it, at that point, I thought that there was going to be something else available for me in the hospital position-wise, but we were at the very end of the layoffs. I got bumped out of my position. I didn't see it anywhere coming, and I'm like, okay, well, um, I'm not ready to to stop doing mm -hmm. what I'm doing. I absolutely love what I'm doing. Okay, I, I saw the areas that were pulling up my heartstring. Um, I ended up doing some additional training for counseling um, children and adolescents because in applied behavioral analysis, it doesn't really focus a lot on the emotional regulation component of things um, and attachment theory and all those kind of things. So I got further studies on that. And, um, and then I did a, a certification in my coaching as well. And then I started Success and Steps. And this brings us to any parent Googling on the internet going, help, yeah, <laughs> help with, help with, uh, you know, and then you've got the checklist of things. Mm -hmm. And so this really brought you into having to work full spectrum with a mm -hmm. lot of different issues. While it was very hands-on with, uh, with the autism aspects, this branched out into everything. It, yes. And I, I remember, cause we were chatting in the bathroom before we even got in here. <laughs> a lot of it is, is is understanding behavior and putting um, limitations, restrictions on it early on, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of us now who have older kids are like, why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't we implement this earlier? So I'm going to go back into yes. let's go earlier. Yes. Uh, and we'll start kind of with what are some of your suggestions in terms of parenting techniques or, you know, not being too overwhelmed when we look at almost like that zero to if we go zero to two, yeah. I mean, there's a, yeah. And then I, and then I hear all of these kind of thought leaders now saying that so much of what our adult life is like is done by the time we're seven, right? Mm -hmm. Our patterns, our thinking, our outlook. So that's a lot of responsibility on parents Absolutely. to figure out how they how things are going to look by the time that kid is seven. So let's go zero to zero to two. Where, where's the emphasis for you? This podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They are a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally as I've been using the Extension Marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. So I'm actually going to take it just before zero to two. Okay. And you're talking about like... You know, people normally talk before they get married, do you want to have kids, mm -hmm. right? Because if one partner really wants to have kids and the other it might be a deciding factor, right? But after the fact, like when you're pregnant, you know, talking about how you were raised as a child, how I was raised, how you were raised are completely different, but how we were raised will play an impact on how we raise our children. 
So if our family was really strict, we might want to be like, I don't want to be that strict with my children because I didn't like the way my family was strict. So we have to talk, we have to be on the same page in terms of parent for, for partners to be raising their children, because they're, it's okay to have differences, but they can't be so far uh, away from each other because that's when you're also going to fall into some problems. So those discussions need to happen. They do need prior to, prior to. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, we need to sit down and talk. It's like, Oh, so when, when you got in trouble, what did your, what did, what did, what happened? And normally those kind of things come out when you're mm-hmm. dating, right? right? You hear all kinds of stories and such, but then you can also see it, how their relationships are with their parents as they're older and, um, and seeing where the, you know, respect. Have you dealt with parents in, in your office that are coming from completely different backgrounds and, and, arguments are happening based on they disagree with how each of them is handling situations? Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's getting parents to understand why the behavior is happening and what's maintaining it. And that's, that's what I really do with families. I look at what the parents' strength and needs are and in, on top of what the child's strength and needs are so that when I'm providing them with strategies, it's very much tailored to their family. So what I do for one family is not the same for what I do for another family. Mm-hmm. I really look at what their strength and needs are. I look at what um, their values are. I look at, you know, what, what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do in terms of um, consequences and such for discipline. Um, I use a positive approach. So, but that discussion, I go really in depth at our very first meeting so that I have an understanding, okay, this is where we need to go. But then I also get a sense from the parents um, where they see the challenges. And like I always tell them, no judgment on my part. Just the more you share with me, the better I'm able mm-hmm. to help you. Okay. So going to zero two yeah. now, it really starts off. I always tell families all the time, ex- clear expectations, consistency, and boundaries. If you have those three things, establish at the very beginning and obviously when you're zero to two like there's not that many things that you can put in place um but at the same time there is right you know if you're so if your child is whining to have a cookie when they're you know 18 months and all of a sudden you don't want them to whine and you give them a cookie right away well we just taught them that we can whine and get a cookie right so it's those little things like that that develop into challenges later on because we're kind of establishing some learned behavior there. Do you have, uh, have you seen differences in how parents have approached the sleep? Rather the let them, when you ask that question, did you let them cry in the crib or did you go and soothe right away? Can you yes. tell the difference? Yes, I, I can. And, and, and parents will often, uh, so when I do the, the intake with them, I do ask them like, you know, do you, do you problem solve for them or do you allow them to problem solve from the self for themselves? How, how long do you go before you help them out? Um, so, you know, there's so many different, um, terminologies now there's the helicopter parent, there's, uh, oh, there's a new one that came out, the snow plowing, Oh yeah, uh, I did hear that. Yeah, so um, I don't use that term. It just seems a really odd term. I do um, use helicopter parents though sometimes in my own yeah. <laughs> in my own <laughs> private discussions. So um, and so we have to provide our the way we grew up and the way kids are growing up nowadays is so different. And nowadays, for even the younger kids, there's just too many structured, organized events whereby we have to give them time to play and be creative, 
to fumble, to scrape a knee, to try different things, but we're always so cautious. We want to bubble wrap them and they, they need to be exposed to certain things to build resilience and know how to problem solve and such. So zero to two is, um, just to go back to that is really to establish what are your household rules? What are the boundaries? What are they allowed or not allowed to do? Cause at 18 months they'll, they're, they're, you know, talk by two. Um, they're starting to use their words. This is when we can, this is the terrible, then you can bring in like the terrible twos. I call them the terrific twos. I like to keep it a positive spin okay. on everything. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> So, um, the terrific twos. Is Yay. Gone. Terrific twos. Yeah. Yay. Um, it's when they're exploring, it's like me do it, right? The two to threes. It's me do it. It's, uh, I can do it. It's, uh, all kinds of things of me, 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 and me want, and I don't want to share and all those kind of things. So it's really teaching our kids, taking them aside and teaching them in the moment, um, modeling to our, our kids, absorbs so much from us that we don't even realize. Um, you see it more when they're older because they, they're mimicking you. Um, like I always leave notes for my kids on a, I, I put a f frame um, and turn it into a dry erase board and I leave them little, either it's a to-do list or little notes. And this morning, actually, as I was in my office, home office, I saw a little note from my daughter. So it's, it's amazing how they, mm -hmm. they, they model what you do. So when you're, when the kids are young, you know, be pay attention to what you do because even though they're not really able to communicate, they they are absorbing. Our children absorb eighty percent of what we do visually, um, like communication wise. Eighty percent visually and twenty percent is auditory. So they'll look, they'll absorb something um, visually first, like uh, TV, right, or pictures, or what we're doing, or, or when you talk about what we're doing now. And this is something we never grew up with and didn't have the experience of us is the the phones, oh. is our smartphones, right? They mm -hmm. see us. So is it, you know, that's where our interest lies that we're not, you know, ignoring or not focused on our children. Yeah. You know, thank God I didn't have my smartphone when I was in the years that I was taking my kids to the park because they would probably have fallen a thousand times. Had, you know, like I, I think of where our attention focus is. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I have a love hate relationship with electronics. Um, now again, no judgment on my part. Families do what works for them. I, I don't believe that, um, that children should have an electronic at such a young age. I get it. It's uh, it's great to be a distractor at times and used, you know. But now we see that because there's educational programs and they're learning, and so we justify. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit more. But like, and I'm talking like the two, three year, four yeah. years, right? Like they're they're on them. They're there's designed a, for them. I saw I saw a stroller that had this. Um, this thing that you can attach to it so you could put your iPad attached to it. I was flabbergasted. And, and anyways, my, my own thoughts are on that, right? Because what's happening with electronics is that the kids are instant gratification, that high rise in dopamine, they get overstimulated. And then when you take the device away, it's not that the child's misbehaving for, for, you know, they could be right. There could be challenged for other things, but a lot of the time it's just that they have a sensory overload and they don't know what to do and they can't communicate that. I'm so sad about the, the stroller because usually the walks, right? You're putting their, your child in usually to go for a walk. And then you would think the sensory overload that you're looking for is the trees and the skies and, and the, the grass birds. and they get the colors and, yeah. and, and nature. Yeah. And if, if they're doing that with a, an, an iPad in front of them, they're living with blinders on. 
And then and then we get angry with them later on for this learned behavior. Exactly. And we're a lot of the time to blame. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Chang from CHEO, mm -hmm. um, I highly recommend people to go and check out the article that the citizen did. He did uh, two different um, um, interviews for that. They're also on my Facebook page for Success and Steps, um, all about the effects of electronics and the mental health of our children and his recommendation timelines for how long um, children should have access and when they should start having access to electronic. It's a huge part of our children's mental health um, from the time that they're they're two. And you know, even I see it with my with my kids and their their friends. There's a huge difference on the kid the way the kids behave, um, how they're you know the instant gratification component there's so many different things and while there's a lot of positive things uh, that you know social media and, and electronics provide to us there's a lot more um, detrimental stuff that's happening as well and our mental health for both adults and children is paying the price for it okay so sylvia so let's say someone's listening to this podcast mm -hmm. and they have a four-year-old at home who's mm -hmm. been for the last couple of years accustomed to having their ipad or yeah. the sensory overload uh, and so they're saying, okay, I'm going to try to limit and take away. And then they're doing that. And then the child has a massive tantrum. Mm -hmm. So then you're starting into the behavioral aspect of mm -hmm. what, what's your implement implementation for that? Like, so when you talked about those three components that parents need to stick by. So whenever we're trying to s switch the way that we're responding to things. So, um, for that, that would be the function of that behavior would be access to a tangible. So to the electronic, um, and you can't just take something away and not provide your child with anything right so it's a matter of limiting so you have to start scaling back on the electronic you can't just go cold turkey because they won't understand that at four years old um, but saying that you can have the ipad after dinner for th and the timer's on for 30 minutes so it's set times whereby they can have it so it's not just whenever they ask for it um, and then if the electronics not available you tell them the uh, so the iPad's not available right now you can play with your Lego or you can go play outside which one would you like so then now, this is just assuming that the child enjoys playing with Lego and enjoys playing outside so you want something else to offer that's highly preferred that's comparable to the electronic. You wouldn't say you can't play on, uh, you can't have the iPad, but you can go clean your room or you can go put away the dishes, right? Like mm -hmm. at four years old, mind you, they wouldn't do that. Actually, sorry, that's a, not a good example, but it's a matter you can clean up your toys or you can go and read a book. If a child's not motivated to do that, then um, you're going to fall into some problems. The one thing that I noticed that you did do, though, is mm -hmm. that you gave two options. Always provide two options. Yep. Not endless options or not, not endless overseas. options. So it's always whenever something's not available, and this goes for any age, I still do this for, for my 12 year old. You can have this or you can have that. Which one would you like? And then if they were to say, well, I'd rather do this. And if that's an option, then I say, go for it. You okay. know, like, yeah, that's a, that's a great option. But it's two. You but don't it's like always two. Okay. Yeah. Because you're removing something from them and you want them to feel like they're in control of what they select. So if you just say you can, you can't have that, but you can have this. Well, they're like, well, I don't want that. I want the iPad. And then that's when, you know, the, the meltdown really starts happening. Whereas if you provide two highly preferred items and they say, I don't want that, but I want this. And if that's okay with you say, yeah, that's a great idea. Go for it. 
And so you're redirecting them to something mm -hmm. else. And that's how you can diffuse a meltdown for something that they had wanted before. Might be a little bit different with your 12-year-old and the 4-year-old, but it's yeah. starting to implement that right now. And how yes. how mm -hmm. early do you want the interventions to start, like, that you believe that these, these learned behaviors need to be dealt with? So as, as young as 2, you can start implementing, you know, very... You know, and they're not strict. You just want to establish some sort of order in your household. And you want to have some consistency. Um, when I talk about the parents, is having the same amount of consistency. So if you're with mom, there's certain expectations. If you're with dad, maybe the expectations look a little bit different, but the follow-through is always the same. So... So that way you don't get into, well, mom lets me do it this way or dad lets me do this way. And then that can trigger mm -hmm. uh, a behavior as well. The follow through. The follow through. Follow through is really important. We're getting into school age children. Mm -hmm. When do you realize a, because we were talking about behavioral and, and yeah. you've dealt with autism and, mm -hmm. and when do you start to kind of go, my child, and we all do this, we do the comparison. Absolutely. Sammy, we Sa we do. Sammy yeah. down the street is already walking. Yeah. Sammy down the street is already talking. Yeah. Sam Sammy, Sammy's reading, you know, and you mm -hmm. could be at the four, five, six, and, and we compare, and then you're worried, and then you're calling your doctor saying, my Susie's not doing this, right? Mm -hmm. How healthy or unhealthy is that? I it's, think it, it, I mean, it can be both ways, right? Um, it's not great to compare. And what's really hard is when you start comparing your oldest to your second child or your third, you know, like you start mm -hmm. comparing your amongst your kids. I say don't do that. We all develop at, at different at different stages. Um, we have to just we do have to look at red, red flags such as talk by two. Right. They need to have a few words by two um, and eye contact. That's a big one, when, particularly when we're talking about children on the autism spectrum. Um, if they don't respond to their name, that's a red flag. Um, if they if you drop a pot or pan or, or something, uh, a big, loud noise and you see that it doesn't even face them. That's a red flag as well. Um, if you start seeing what we call self-stimulatory behavior that, you know, they're, they're toe walking a lot or um, they're flapping their hands or they're walking a lot, um, red flag. Um, if they're lining up things or if they always place things in a certain manner and then if you remove something or, um, you know, something gets, uh, there's a, a piece missing from their collection and they, they have a huge meltdown, that's a red flag as well. So those are, those are big red flags for, for autism. So typically they don't diagnose children on the autism spectrum before the age of two, um, because of the developmental, they really need to have those kind of uh, mm -hmm. red flags in order to have those for a uh, psychologist to make those diagnoses. Um, but if they do already have a sibling that has been already diagnosed, um, they might take a look at your child a little bit earlier. Like I've seen some children um, diagnosed as young as 18 to and 15 months, which is always... So are you saying that having an older sibling with um, with autism is a better indicator? Is it? It doesn't mean that the other one is going to have autism by any means, but there is, there is, there a, is a link. Yeah, there could be a link there. I, I've worked, I've seen many families that have more than one children on the autism spectrum, some at different severities. And how large is this spectrum? Because we hear it so much more often now, right? Autism yeah. is much more prevalent in our conversation. And yes, it's the spectrum, it's right? A spectrum. Right. It's a, it's a big spectrum because you can have a high functioning child, right. That has very mild, 
um, form of asper uh, of autism, such as PDD NOS or of um, of Aspergers, right? So Aspergers typically are high functioning. Um, they just where they lag are their social school, mm -hmm. uh, skills, right? They have difficulties. They tend to perseverate on their own topics. They don't know how to have reciprocal conversations. Um, whereas there's other children that are nonverbal. Um, and they're or they're low functioning there's just a lot of light, daily life skills that they're not able to do they have a lot of difficulties in the areas of behavioral and emotional regulations um, they um, don't have uh, strong communication skills and that um, uh, just their every day is very rigid and um, very routine based and often difficult as well like there it's 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 really an umbrella so you're starting to monitor these checkpoints. Yes. And then from these checkpoints is then the, the quicker you're in treatment or the quicker you're able to get help or to be able to work on some of these. I mean, and I, I know that there's issues and the faster that you're able to get them into the treatment, the better. Yes. And yet you were talking about an 18 month waiting list uh, yeah. before, you know, it's complicated. It's very complicated. And there's so many changes that are happening right now. Yeah. Um, and I won't even, I, I, I don't, yeah, to, because to even go into the school system and what's happening and losing. So I, I, I yeah. can't like, cause I will lose the entire podcast. We'll have to, we'll have to figure <laughs> yeah. that one out uh, on, on another time. And I do want to be able to hit on, on certain things that I think parents will, are searching for in terms of tools, yes. tips to be able to work them through certain things. Absolutely. So we'll stay on, on, on okay. track on this. And um, there's a lot of different changes when, when we're coming talking about autism um, with uh, government funding programs. Um, early from my experience, I've been in the field for, for many, many, many years. Um, early intervention is key. The quicker you can get intervention, the quicker that we can start um, breaking down um, tasks and rebuilding them for for these children so that they're able to develop skills whereby they're lagging so that the learning trajectory is not such of a, a large gap. Um, and so with that intervention, it's providing consistency, it's providing clear expectation. You're learning how to do the follow through. Um, your children are learning how to appropriately ask for things. Um, you're, you're decreasing the, the meltdowns. Um, you're developing, you know, different areas. There's, there's so much to go on, but early intervention is, is definitely key for that. You can have a very healthy child with really powerful meltdowns. Absolutely. <laughs> I work with a lot of families that have children with no diagnosis, but have... And what is the key to, to, to meltdowns? Like what, what are like these tantrums? Mm -hmm. How can parents help or alleviate or sue them? It really depends why the tantrums are happening. So there's four functions to behavior. A child's either having a meltdown because they're doing it for attention. They're doing it to escape a demand. They're doing it to access something, a tangible, like an electronic or a cookie or something like that, or they're doing it for sensory. Um, so internal sensory or something that they're doing um, physically that provides them with a sensory input. Oftentimes, and I know you had mentioned, a child doesn't know the type of emotion they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. They can't differentiate between, um, you know, nervous or anxious or, you know, they, I think they have like happy or sad, but they have the five general. Okay. Ones, so yeah. what are our five general? Happy, sad, excited, mad, and angry. Those are the ones they understand. Those are the ones that we tend to um, 
they start to learn through television, through books, right? They, they often talk about those emotions. They don't talk about anxious. They don't talk about frustrated. They don't talk about overwhelmed. They don't talk about nervous. They don't talk about the more specific emotions. And those are ones that parents need to teach their children. And we do that by modeling. So we can say, you know what, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little anxious today. Um, I mean, this is the conversations that you have when your children are a little bit more older. So, so for them to understand, because sometimes I was understanding that, you know, you can have a tantrum, but it's really that they were anxious about a situation. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't, they were trying to be bad. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't express the emotion that they were going through. Right. And we're so quick. I found, you know, to just snap out of it Mm -hmm. you know and and that just isn't always the case and I know that you've established um like a charting yes right and that it's there's an emotion there's a color there's a how to deal with yeah so I've modified it so I didn't develop it but I've modified it so it's called the five point scale or the zones of regulation so a lot of schools use it they um they started in grade one typically to to use it and they talk about zones by color because kids can associate with colors um so green is zone one and happy and with red being, um, you know, angry. And so what it does is it, it, it helps children to identify how they're feeling. They can redirect to it. Cause as I said before, visually children absorb 80% visually. So visuals really help our children, um, to understand all kinds of different things. But in terms of emotions, they talk, they understand we had given them a detail of how that makes them feel. And then at the very end, what I've modified is what can I do? So we, these are things that we have to learn and observe as parents. Okay. Well, this is what makes my child calm. Or I've noticed that he gets so frustrated that, you know, these are the things I do. So, you know, he can go and escape and uh, go in color, or he can go and uh, kick his ball um, to, to have some emotional regulations. So you've been able to, at least with the families that you work with, understand how each of these colors, levels, zones work and what what the tool is going to be to help them yes. get through some of these stages. Yes. And so there's an example of that on my website that parents can go and look at um, um, within a, a segment that I did. And it really speaks about how we can explain it with their children, how you can modify. You know your child best. You can also ask your teachers, uh, the teachers at school, you know, what do you, what does my child normally do in order to calm themselves down at school? Or what do you do to help them? Um, so that if we generalize between the home and the school environment, if the consistency between the two is really going to help the child as well to, to self-regulate. Okay. Then you have a child as they're getting older who they they're, they're quite good at expressing how they feel mm-hmm. and they're aggressive or they're talking back or they have behavioral, you know, like mm-hmm. you, parents are just throwing their hands up going, I have no idea how to, how to deal with them. Yeah. So again, it goes down to the why, um, you know, what, what is the outcome of their behavior? Are they upset because you didn't give them the key to the car? Well then let them have their mouth in and let them know why they can't have the keys to the car. You can't have the keys to the car because I need to go somewhere. And what what I like to encourage parents to stop doing is over explain. And particularly when the kids are younger. So we we tend to want to reason with our children and explain to the point until we get uh, okay mom or something from them so that they understand. Really what that's doing is putting, you know, what I could call as putting logs into a fire and making that fire get bigger because they're not understanding what you're doing. Right now they're in the moment. They're very upset. We need to keep it very short and sweet. So no, you can't have a cookie right now because we're about to have dinner. And I get what I actually get asked a, a lot is, well, why do I have to tell, tell my child 
Why? Why can't I just say no? Mm-hmm. Because no is not enough of an answer. And we wouldn't, res- we wouldn't appreciate being told no either, right? So you ask your boss, um, can I have the, these two weeks off in July? Yeah. And your boss responds, no. Would you be okay with that? Or would you be okay with your boss saying, no, I'm sorry, you can have those two weeks off because someone else, two other people are already booked off and we'd be short-staffed, but you can have the following mm-hmm. two weeks. Which one would you accept more, right? So it's a matter of just letting them know why. So that way, not only is it allowing them to understand why, but they also know for next time. And so they can build on those skills. Okay, so I can't have cookies close to dinner time, but I can have cookies after dinner. So, you know, maybe you say, no, you can't have a cookie now because we're about to have dinner. But first you eat your dinner and then you can have a cookie after you Is that finish. too much explanation? Or- Depends on how old they are, but you can you can break it down for them. So no, you can't have a cookie now because we're about to have dinner. And then you say, well, when can I have a cookie? Because that's generally the, the other follow-up the follow And say, well, first eat your dinner, and then um, you can have a cookie. So you can have a child that's very vocal, mm-hmm. um, yells, expresses, and mm-hmm. then you can have one that completely um, regresses, yes. uh, goes into their room, closes the door, retreats, uh, non- nonverbal in a very different kind of way. Yeah. And do you see both equally yeah i do see both equally whereby parents don't uh, are unable to communicate with their children um i i encourage families to have dinners family dinners um if they can't have it every single night because you know shift work or um you know just organized sports (laughs) you know like you know soccer uber mom um but having at least a set day of the week whereby you do have a meal together and have conversations um Loose conversations, right? Um, one thing that I like to do with my family is the highlight and low light of the day. I always do that with the kids, and the kids always ask me to, and I love it because um, it makes me think as well. But I always ask them, and sometimes they might not have a low light, and then and sometimes they might not have a highlight. But it's it's a conversation builder, and if you do that every single day, it allows you to build that rapport so that they always feel like they can communicate with you. So if you start that on as a, as a younger age, then they'll be able to continue that as you get older. I also encourage families to have conversations on a car ride, right? So rather than them being on an electronic, having conversations, talk about what you want to do on the weekend, um, all kinds of different things. It just opens that line of communication as well with, with the children. So highlight, low light. Yeah, highlight, low light. And uh, conversations in cars. So not yes. the music blaring. Not Although the music sometimes, blaring. well, I'm not allowed to sing. They're allowed to <laughs> <laughs> Mom's not allowed to sing. Uh, but these are just kind of interesting tidbits that you've done with families. Yes. Um, the other thing is when they do communicate, and it might not be something that you're okay with or it might have startled you, I always encourage families to say, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing will go a long way, particularly when they're under the age of 10 years old and prep them for when they're older and they do have to have those uh, tougher conversations with you. Because right now, children don't feel like they're being heard. And for so many different reasons, right? But we want them to always feel like they are being heard. Thank you for sharing. Let's talk about that. Or thank you for sharing. I'm having a hard time, but I, I'm having a hard time understanding. Can we talk about this a little bit more? Or why are you feeling that way? Or thank you for bringing that up. 
so many different things. Thank you for sharing. We'll stop from that argument that you're going to have with a child and then allow you a segue to actually have a conversation. Whereas if we, a child says something to us and we start losing our, our marbles right away and just uh, start, you know, yelling or, or telling them why they're wrong, then they're going to shut down and their defense mechanisms are going to go up. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Start that young. Start that young. So that you can even start that now. It's all, there's never a hard, never, never a bad time to start. But if you start that young, it's fantastic. It will go a long way. So that when you have that 15, 16 year old that needs to bring up something mm -hmm. that the, they'll, they'll know first thing isn't going to be a blow up. It'll at least be. Exactly. <laughs> I've got one line at least to get through before the, before all hell. Yeah. And you can always say that, you know, mommy needs a timeout. Or daddy, you don't have to respond to your kids right away. If it's something really overwhelming, we always feel like we have to be super mom and super dad and have an answer for everything. If we don't have an answer or we're, if we're, we're too overwhelmed or um, we think that we might react in a way that we're not going to be so proud of, because how many times does that happen? It happens. No judgment. We're, we're, we're all human. But we can say, I need a minute. I'll be ready to talk to you. What's, what's your take on punishment or... Do you have a different view of punishment or how it needs to be understood by all parties involved? So I like to take a positive approach um, for everything. Kind of like the terrific twos? Kind of like okay. terrific twos um, and fantastic fours. Um, I like to work with a child's motivation. Um, I'm not a believer in bribery. I'm a believer in working with a child's motivation so that it develops compliance for a child. Um, I am also a strong believer in natural consequences. Um, so I'll use my children uh, right. as an example. Um, both of my kids play competitive soccer and like they know that they can't be late um, because then, you know, they might get benched or, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, the coach is going to call them out and they don't want to do that. But if they have things that they need to get done. Um, so it's a first then strategy. First get that done and then we'll go to soccer. But soccer, first get that done and then get a soccer. But I'm gonna be late then. Well, if you don't wanna get late, first go and do that. And then be, so it's always being consistent mm -hmm. on what you're saying so that you're not gonna get into the argument. They're gonna understand that you're, what you're saying is the deal. And then the natural consequences, if they don't get it done, because it's not like I'm not giving them enough time. They have plenty of time. It's if they, they get stuck with the shiny object syndrome and they get distracted. <laughs> they get to choose. So there has been time whereby they're late and they have to explain to the coach why they're late. Does it happen often? No, because they, they've learned from that because they don't want that. I have a feeling though that your kids haven't done things that have been deserving of punishment, but, yes, I'm, assuming, <laughs> but I'm assuming that parents that are coming into your office, you know, what, you know, that for some, like, I just think go to your room isn't punishment anymore. There's way too much fun stuff in yeah. the room to, so, to go. Like, yeah, you know, when we had to go to our rooms, we had no TVs or electronics or anything like that. Like, it, no you, toys, you were nothing. bored. Yeah. Now, our room was to, meant to sleep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, going to your room, timeouts are not mm -hmm. effective. Timeouts are only effective if the natural consequence is going to be that they're going to miss out on something in the mode immediate. So the example that I like to use is if you're at a birthday party 
for a child and they're misbehaving and we pull them away and say, and we let them know why we're pulling them away. You're being too aggressive. You need to be using gentle hands. And because I've already, you know, and say that, you know, maybe you already told them ahead of time. Actually, can we just backstep that actually? Mm -hmm. So before going to a birthday party or anywhere new, I always encourage families to state what the expectations are in advance. Because it's not fair to a child that is extremely excited to once they get there, they do something, they get called out on it or they get pulled away because you're shocked that that they were aggressive. That's not fair to the child because they're really excited. So before going to the birthday party... Okay, we're gonna go to um, we're gonna go to uh, Sarah's birthday party, and just remember, you know, at a birthday party is gonna be a lot of a lot of loud music. You guys are going to play. Um, tag and all those kind of things but remember you guys need to use gentle hands okay and we you know you can you can be excited and stuff like that but let's let's be um kind with our words and letting them know what those expectations are in advance um and so you know before you go in and say okay guys so what are the rules and they repeat it to you if they're old enough to repeat it if they're not old enough to repeat it you just remind them again before going in then if something happens at the birthday party you can call them out on it and say okay remember we were supposed to be using our gentle hands let's go we're going to go we're going to go and have uh, some time to ourselves to calm down and then you can join back in the natural consequences is that they're being pulled away from something that they're really enjoying but a timeout just at home when a they're time- not missing out on anything doesn't yeah, work. It doesn't work. It gets replaced with other things. They're not reflecting on anything, right? They're they're keeping themselves occupied. They might be singing a song in their head. They're, the time out is supposed to be a time whereby they're self-reflecting. Our children are not self-reflecting during that time. And there's no, there's no real consequence. They go back to what they want afterwards, depending on how the parents handle the time out. Do you find that's oftentimes people are coming into the office for that? Yeah, so a lot of times um, they're giving their child time out, but then then afterwards they hug it out afterwards. Mm-hmm. But it really depends on what why they got the hug out, uh, why they got the time out to begin with. Like, should we be giving our child a lot of attention afterwards? Not so much. What I always encourage is that let them come out of it if, if you're going to do a time out because. Like I said, no judgment on my part, but I do encourage that if you are going to do a timeout, let them go back and do something, you know, have an opportunity to do something appropriately. And once they're on task, then start showing, you can give them the affection or call them out and say, I really like the way you're playing with your toys now and give that positive reinforcement. Okay. But then you have a kid, let's go 15. We have only a couple minutes left too. Oh. So we got like 15 year old dressed mm. in black, black eyeliner, black thing, hating, like going with the death, uh, you know, let's go with the dark, dark they're, they're living the dark phase. Yeah. Who doesn't do that? I did that stage. So <laughs> go, go out and buy them the black eyeliner. Okay. I did not, I did not wear a black trench yeah. coat. Yeah. I did dye my hair black, um, and, and wore black for a bit. Um, I think it was my Smashing Pumpkin days. Mm-hmm. Um, I still love the Smashing Pumpkins, though. Um, but, you know, kids go and try and fit in in different groups, especially in high school, right? So we don't want to put the alarms on right away um, when they're trying something, you know, if it's no self-harm to themselves mm-hmm. or to others. Um, we there. It's a self-discovery time. So it is like, you know, skating on thin ice uh, or walking on thin ice, however that expression goes. Um because we want to give them an opportunity to discover themselves, but then we want to have that open communication with them as well. 
So thank you for sharing the fact that you're going to shave your head. Or thank you for sharing the fact that you're going to dye your hair pink or black. Like, you can how much of this are we no, using so, your other? So thank you for sharing when they're having a conversation. Okay. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's a good decision. And here's why. Or if you were to shave your head. Okay, so you want to shave your head. Why would? Why do you want to shave your head? So because I want to piss you off. Okay, so if right? you want, so yeah. if if it's just because they want to pit, if that's their honestly their answer, then we have to dive in deeper and see mm -hmm. where that attachment has failed us. What if you're noticing the child is dealing with peer pressure? They're doing or making decisions not based on what they would like, but what their peers are doing. So this is where social media does come in handy. So I always encourage family to be attached to their to their child's. Um, Instagram account or whatever accounts that are out there as well, um, and just monitor because you're that's a good red flag. Oh, Sylvia, they then go and create secret accounts. Oh, I know, and then you yeah. go uh, and you go and find their <laughs> secret accounts because they get tagged and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit. It is a little bit challenging, but you, even though you were not able to see those secret accounts, you're able to look at other friends. Um, say Instagram stories, mm -hmm. which is now a thing. No one puts pictures anymore. They no, just, do just do Instagram the because they disappear. So you have to go in there and just see the way that other children are conducting themselves because true colors, um, you get a sense of where peer pressure, if your child starts really changing the way that they're acting, um, you can kind of see where things are. Um, if they're asking to do things that are out of the ordinary, having those conversations with them um, to determine what is it that they want to do um, and have and making sure that you have that like open communication with your children is really really key but you are going to have teenagers that are going to rebel um, you're going to have teenagers that are going to you know have colorful words for you um, it's really having what are the consequences for that is that acceptable and you know if a child were to speak to me um, and like even if my, one of my kids at this age at 12 and 10 were to speak to them I'm sorry that's not acceptable. That's not the way you speak to me. You can either try again or you can go to, and I'll say you can go and do this or this and then come back to me. It won't be anything reinforcing, but they'll come back to me or there's going to be a consequence for it if it's something that comes up again afterwards, because we have to teach them right off the bat that that's not acceptable and we're not going to be taking that kind of behavior. But there could be kids that have, I mean, and really quickly, because you had mentioned like there, there are kids in kindergarten who are aggressively you know, aggression, mm -hmm. physical aggression has become much more of a trait than ever before. Yeah, especially in kindergarten and grade one. It's incredible how many children um, are aggressive in kindergarten and grade one. Um, you would, it's such a far cry from what we experienced um, growing up. That is a matter of, of consequence and how we handle things. And if we let things, if we're negatively reinforcing, I mean, uh, unfortunately we only have an hour to speak about, mm -hmm. so it goes so much deeper, but we really have to have, so when we're talking about the reason there's four re functions of behavior, we have to also look at what's maintaining the behavior. So if we're giving into a behavior, if we're allowing them to do something and brushing it off, if we're giggling at them when, um, after they've done something because it's not appropriate, but you know, you're just going to try and laugh it off. Those kind of things reinforce it. Um, if they break something and then, you know, you're, you're the one cleaning it up afterwards, as opposed to them cleaning up, reinforcing that's negatively reinforcing. There's so many different mm -hmm. things. Um, so it's really a matter of 
when they're younger, establishing clear expectations and boundaries for these children. Boundaries is, is what's lacking. Okay. The boundaries and in jumping on a problem, if they think it's going to go away, it's not. No. So like if you're it's thinking, oh, that's a phase. It's a phase. Yeah. It's not. So when you recognize that behavior is starting, get on it ASAP. And if yeah. you can't get it on it yourself, like this is where you come in, right? Is like mm-hmm. having a, a behavior specialist work with the family to be able to diminish it quickly because yes. everyone thinks it's just a phase it'll pass and, and that's not it and then my last question you know as we were kind of going through the stages we are dealing much more now with um, sexual identity um, conversations you know as to when sexual activity is starting that all seems to kind of have gotten younger and younger as well mm-hmm. and so are you when are you seeing the discussions happening now with families well, now that they incorporated um, that part of their uh, health plan, uh, health in, in school, I had the conversation with my kids prior to them having um, exposed in the school. And the reason being, some children are very oblivious and where other people, other children are more uh, well-informed. Um, and so just having that conversation with your children, whether it be in a form of a book um, or um, there's some really great books at chapters that explain um, that either read with your kids or allow them so to read. give examples. Um, actually, American Girl has mm-hmm. a really great one for girls. It talks about puberty, um, how their body is going to be changing. So there's a, a, a part one book, and then the part two book is all about the, the whole uh, sex ed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's really well put together. Um, what I did for my daughter is I paperclipped a section that I, I said, you can read the whole book on your own because I gave her the option, do you want to read it with me or do you read it on your read on your own? She chose to read it on her own. I said, okay, but this section here, this is the one section that I want to read with you. And it was all about sexual intercourse. And so we, we did have that uh, that one-on-one time and we read that together. And, and what age were you doing that? Uh, she was in grade five. Okay, so she was 11. 11, yeah. And I, and you know, she was, you know, didn't really want to talk about it, but I told her she can have, um, she can ask any questions that she had, uh, for me either now or later. But you found that was the age, the appropriate age to be able to have this discussion. Yeah. Well, because our, our, you know, girls are, are having their, their menstruation as so much earlier, so much earlier, grade four. Um, is uh, great. Like I, even every time, time I say that, it's just flabbergasting. It's, yeah. But grade four, um, they're starting to have uh, their menstrual cycle, and so they need to be aware. They need to be educated. They can't be educated by their friends that don't know much more than them. Um, and so the more we educate our children, the more they're going to feel comfortable. Um, the less they're going to get in trouble. And you know, air, air quotes there. Um, but they need to be informed and need to know that they can come to you um, for any questions that they have and feel comfortable about it. A grade four, you know, or a young girl hitting a menstrual cycle earlier or a young boy at 11 thinking that he's not thinking about the girls, he's thinking about the boys. Like yeah. those are those are different discussions to be having at yeah. these younger ages and yet we are having them. Yeah, we're having them. And that's when I, I say as well, like keeping that line of communication open. If you see anything that might be concerning to you, you know, if you think that um, your child might you know, might be gay or, um, that is trying to have some self-identity, try and develop those conversations with them, ask them, you know, you know, how, how are things going at school? Uh, you know, who are you hanging out with? I find that asking who, what they've done at school, even at a young age to start doing that. So rather than say, how was your day? Be more specific. Like, what did you do at recess? 
Um, you know, who did you hang out with? Starting when those conversations, when they're younger, is going to be easier to ask them questions when, when they're in high school. You know, like, uh, so what do you guys do at recess now? Or during your break? Mm -hmm. It's not called recess anymore, mom. Um, like, what do you guys do during your break? Um, who are you hanging out with? Do you, And if you know certain friends, are you still hanging out with so-and-so? If they say no, say, oh, okay, I thought you guys were good friends. Did something happen there? Start drawing. Just, you know, like, you don't want to be picking on them for like trying to, you know, absorb, you know, get too much information mm -hmm. out of them and they feel like they're being interrogated. It really has to be like, oh, did, did you guys have a falling out? Like something more natural so that they start feeling a little bit more comfortable with sharing that. But more direct questions so that it's not how it's school today and then it's like fine. Yeah. And then the end of conversation. Exactly. <laughs> you need to give something whereby they have to provide an explanation. Right. Because if once we get into those one word answers, we know that our child is it, it, it we don't it's a red flag that there could be other things because we don't want to start getting them to shut down on us that's what a, a number one thing that our parent you know we as parents want to avoid is our parent our children shutting down on us so really opening up those conversation always providing them with a, some sort of a a question or a comment that would should receive an answer for it um so that we can continue the conversation I wish that I could continue the conversation, but I'm going to take a wild guess and go, oh, my God. <laughs> sorry, Veronica. She kind of gave me that 10-minute uh, warning 20 minutes ago. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> uh, people can go uh, check out. I mean, there's so many things that are on the website. There's mm -hmm. videos um, that you had done on CTV Morning Live. We just missed each other in terms of those years. Um, but the, the different things that you're able to focus on with parents, families, and children. So yes. success and steps. Is Six, that the best yeah. place? Okay. Success and steps, uh, .ca is the best place to reach me. Um, I post a lot of things uh, always on my website, um, Facebook page. I have an Instagram page as well, but the website's the best thing um, to contact me. A free consultation, um, just to get a sense, like it's not always a, the right fit um, for, for me or the family. Like if I feel as though this is not where you should be at right now, I'll, I'll provide an external resource to what like I think Like there needs to be fit. more of a medical intervention or more... Yeah, or, or you know what, you really need a speech-language pathologist, or you know what, I don't handle that those type of things, but this is this is uh, an area whereby I can provide you with. Or, you know, if parents are looking for more for sleep that's not associated to behavior, then I, you know, there's quite a few sleep consultants that I can refer to that I've, I've worked uh, side mm -hmm. by side to. But, it, but in having that original intake conversation, you're able to direct them. Yeah. Because it could be, they think it's complicated, but it could be, you know, you, you know we're dealing with a speech issue. Yeah. Or we're just dealing with a sleep issue. Yeah. Uh, that is, is probably what a parent is like, oh, okay, we can yeah, <laughs> we can handle that one. Exactly. And also get a sense of, you know, you know what, you just need a few sessions with me. And because it sounds like you're on the right page, but let's just let's just shape a few things and and but you'll be on your way like quite nicely. And is it usually with the child? No, it's without. So um, my focus is uh is focusing on providing the parents with the tools and strategies because at the end of the day as a therapist that's why I don't work with the kids anymore because working well other yeah. than my uh my situation but working with the kids was extremely rewarding but at the end of the day they'd go back to their parents 
and the parents wouldn't have the tools in order to help their children. So I want to be, I want to provide the parents, parents with the confidence and the Have the parents the ever tools. come back to you and said, my kid's wondering what's going on? Oh, all the time. <laughs> like the parents yeah. are going to this, to these sessions and all yeah. of a sudden the kid's going, what's going on here? Oh yeah. And we get what's called an extinction burst. So the kids will always try and do what worked for them before. And then as soon as this parents start putting strategies in mm -hmm. place, the kids will up it one notch or maybe two notches. And I always tell parents, if you're having a hard time implementing the strategies at this time, just reach out to me. They're, just send me yeah. an email. I'll provide you with support because this is the crucial peak whereby you need to be consistent because you need to let them know. Because they could get worse before it gets better, especially always. if they realize the parents are, are catching on. It always gets worse before it gets better. And this is why a lot of strategies, uh, a lot of parents end up throwing in the towel at that point. But really, if we understand the why and what's maintaining it, which I help parents to understand, and we put apply the right strategy, it will work. It's just a matter of how determined your child is to prove, like, try mm -hmm. to work against you. Um, but it, it will work. And I, I've worked with families at, with a very extreme situations um, and challenges. And we've, the, like, the, I remember one mom that said, my kids are never going to be able to sleep in their own bed. And they totally sleep in their own bed now. Twins. So, oh. um, and then, and they're older and just a lot of challenges. And... A lot of flying colors before, um, but now things are, are going well with the consistency and the follow through. There's lots of different things that can be implemented. It's just a matter of having the discussion and, yeah. and, and having parents on board. Having parents on board. Yeah, absolutely. The big thing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, having Great me. for sharing some of the stories and the strategies. So I'm going to say thanks for sharing. <laughs> You're <laughs> very a, welcome. Yeah, thank you for sharing as, a, as I, I head back it. home. Yes. Uh, and that's a wrap on this episode of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. As always, please thank you for liking, subscribing, sharing, letting other people know about the podcast. It's definitely helped to, uh, to see this podcast grow in numbers and in downloads and in an audience. So really appreciate it. Sylvia, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.